Grace and peace to you, my friends, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is good to be with you today. And I bring you greetings from the Alliance of Baptists, all of our staff, and the 140 churches and the 28 different states that make us up, the 30-some ministry partners and ecumenical and advocacy partners around the world. I really thank you for what we've been singing. We sang, I need thee every hour. We need one another every hour to be Christian in this world, to be the prophetic witness we are called to be. We need all of our churches tucked away in all of the places where they are, from New England to California to Texas to North Carolina, where I hail as home. We need one another. And our prayer for our nation and for our world is that we will be more loving. And unless we work together in that, my friends, it's not going to happen. The empire is at work really hard. And they're working to, to put more of the world's money and possessions and power in the hands of 1%. So thank you for being a part of the Alliance of Baptists, where we are a theological home, where we do our mission in partnership with one another, and where we work for God's justice and love on this planet. We are very grateful to have you as a part of the Alliance of Baptists. And I'm very grateful to be here with you this morning to be able to share something that's been on my heart for a while and what we are working on in the Alliance of Baptists that really bubbles up out of this text for me. So will you turn with me to the gospel reading? It's found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Would you stand as you're able, in body or in spirit, Now, when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders, and they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also so many other traditions that they observe, like the washing of cups and pots and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, well, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites. As it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. 
all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the gospel of grace. Thanks be to God. There are quite a few traditions that fill my memory of childhood and family life. Given the season of the year that it's harvest time, especially I think of the traditions around harvesting the crop. I grew up on a tobacco farm in the Piedmont of North Carolina, the only daughter of what my mama called dirt farmers. That's how she described her parents and her grandparents. And in our farming community, neighbors helped out neighbors. There seemed to be a community understanding, actually, that equipment and tools were shared. So one farmer owned the, the um, mowing machine, another one owned the rake, and another one owned the hay baler. And so all collectively, we would work through all of our families together, and the H1's hay crop would be brought in that year. And during harvest season uh, and tobacco, we did the same thing. I remember one year we shared harvesting chores with a family across the woods from us. So one day our family would go and we would harvest that farmer's crop. And the next day they would come to our farm and we collectively shared our energy and our time, a very valuable resource. No exchange of money. We just helped each other. I remember a planting season when my father had been incapacitated because he had had surgery. And I looked out the window at the break of dawn from my bedroom one morning, and there were all of our neighbors there to help us plant our crop, expecting nothing but assisting us in our time of need. So this tradition of neighbor helping neighbor, like, kind of like a barn raising, uh, is a significant part of my childhood memory growing up on a farm. But there's another tradition during this harvest season, and that was the huge midday meal. We called the midday meal dinner on the farm, and it was my role as the only daughter to help my mother prepare that meal and get it on the table. We had to have plenty of food to get through the work of the day. The meals were bountifully prepared from all of the fresh vegetables from the garden, fruit pies, meats from the animals we had nurtured along the way, homemade biscuits, and my mama made gorgeous homemade biscuits. I did not inherit that from her. Mine are lumpy, hers were smooth and uniform, and gallons of iced tea. So one day, though, I deferred from my mother's instructions, and I set the table differently. You see, the tradition was that if the family ate on the porch, then the help, who were African-American, ate in the kitchen. Or vice versa. If the family ate in the kitchen, then the help ate on the back porch. I don't remember the conversation that followed, but I set the table differently one day. I set my place so that I ate with the helpers who were African-American. And then after that, it all changed. We never sat that way again. I, I don't remember how we talked about it, but I wondered, why did we sit separately anyway? The tradition of separating and valuing human beings based on the color of their skin 
is a tradition from my growing up days on the farm. It is a tradition of which I am not proud. And it's a part of our history of our nation in which I have been complicit and I daily seek God's forgiveness. I have an equally vivid memory also of um, a church business meeting. My home church had business meetings every month. It was just laborious, believe me you. I don't know how often you meet, but every month we had church business meeting. And I remember during my teenage years, a motion being debated as to whether or not African Americans who presented themselves for church membership would be accepted. It was an unstated tradition that the church membership was open only to whites. But it became codified in the minutes of that church that day, in that business meeting, that that was the church policy. I grew. I was born in 55. You do the math. I was a teenager in the 60s. It became church policy that day. So when I read and I reread today's gospel text where Jesus uses repeatedly the tradition of the elders, I thought about these traditions in my church that, that birthed me and raised me and taught me of God's love. And I thought about the traditions of how the church treated women and has continued and continues to treat women. And Jesus says of the scribes and the Pharisees that they teach human precepts as doctrines and hold to human tradition. He uses the same critique that Isaiah used in his time. Is not that a critique that is just as applicable to us today who call ourselves followers of Jesus? Haven't we also elevated human precepts above the core teachings of Jesus? So the human precept that white people are more valuable than people of color was articulated at the founding of our nation. It, it, it is in our DNA as a country that that is how we treat people. Beginning with the Declaration of Independence, it states that indigenous people to the land are not accorded the same inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but instead in the Declaration of Independence they're called merciless, merciless Indian savages. And similarly, in the Constitution, written during the height of slavery in America, when determining representation and taxation, surely you know this, America, African Americans are defined as three-fifths of a human being. And consider the social and legal principle referred to as the one-drop rule. Whites were the superior race. Even a single drop of inferior blood contaminated the purity of whiteness. And the marginalization of people of color has not just been limited to African Americans. In 1850s, the Secretary of State, James Buchanan, who later became president, and in the 1920s, Representative John Box both warned the U.S. against immigration referencing Mexicans as mongrels. And our current president, I listened to it on the news, in North Carolina a couple of weeks ago, when Mexico sends its people, they bring drugs, they bring crime, they bring rapists. It's, it's, it's present in our context today, in our culture. And we have to also acknowledge our history as Baptists. The family out of which this church was born, out of which the Alliance of Baptists was born, was formed on the precept that white people are more valuable than people of color. 
The formation of the Southern Baptist Convention, out of which we grew, occurred because the Triennial Convention refused to appoint a slave-owning missionary. Southerners who were Baptists formed their own mission society and sent their own missionaries. So the tradition of the elders? Think about it. What are the traditions of the elders? The tradition of the elders in this country has worked to limit equal access to the pursuit of the American dream to people who look like the elders, same skin color, same genitalia. However, we have a counter-narrative in the church. And it is the doctrine of the Imago Dei, which insists on recognizing every human being as an image bearer of God. It's the doctrine we as followers of Jesus are called to live by, not the human precepts or traditions of the elders. But some protest, Paula, we've changed the laws. We've ended Jim Crow. No longer is there separate but equal in education and society, and we have. Or, Paula, you're in a liberal church. We're, we're not racist here. However, the devaluing and the dehumanizing of people of color, I do not believe is ended. Now, my family no longer separates people at the table by the color of their skin. Neither does my home church turn away anyone seeking membership now. However, I know the hearts of my family members, some. I know my own heart. And there remains a subconscious, if not conscious, fear of people of color. And I'm convinced that all of us harbor racial bias, often unaware. I became convicted of that reality about myself several years ago when I was uh, working with students. I spent, I've had several iterations of my ministry and one was campus minister. A very dark-skinned, thick-necked football player was my son's basketball coach in the rec league basketball team. A gregarious and very high-spirited young man, just, just fun to be with. But I always wondered about Cedric. He had this scar on his head, and I, I always kind of imagined, wonder how Cedric got his scar. And you know what I imagined? I imagined that maybe Cedric had been in a fight. Maybe that's how he got his scar. I didn't ask him because I didn't think it was polite to ask, you know. But then one day, Cedric told me about his scar. He had had brain surgery as a child. And I had imagined the worst. Why did I imagine the worst? I, I became so convicted of my own racial bias. So let me tell you, I'm working daily in my life to overcome my racial bias and my blindness to white privilege. And I am admonishing everyone else that I meet to do the same. I'm admonished by this writer of the book of James to really look in the mirror and see my reflection. And when I walk away, not to immediately forget what I see. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Do you see a white person? Now, I realize there are other persons of color here, but I'm talking to the white people right now. Do you see a white person? What does it mean to be white? What do you like about being white? What do you not like about being white? 
And I am committed to addressing the presence of white privilege in our institutions, our organizations, our churches, and our communities. And we've made a commitment in the Alliance of Baptists to engage in the very difficult work of examining our structures, our policies, our ways of being and doing through the lens of race. And our, multi, our racial justice and multiculturalism community has led the way in that work for us by the publishing of Trouble the Water, a resource for congregations to, to use to look at their own. And I brought a few copies if you don't have one. I have them in my bag right there. <laughs> so I'm calling our churches, our leaders, our people who care, our followers of Jesus to do the same. And I believe it is the hardest one of the hardest, if not the hardest work I've ever done because of my blind spots, because of having lived in a tradition of the elders where being white was equated with being normal. So I'm reading, I'm praying, I'm reading again. Our staff is studying together. We're engaging with conversations with others committed to the same journey. I'm taking a class on dismantling and healing racism that all starts with me learning about me and this bubble of whiteness I've lived in most of my life. And I'm assessing what influence I have, what agency is mine that I can make a difference in the community where I live and where I work. And you know, I found a group of young people in the county where I live they have nothing to do with church. They don't even mention church. And yet they are more concerned about racial justice than anybody else in my community. How, go, go figure, does that make sense? I just thought religious people are doing good work, right? But here I found these young people that I'm giving my time to now because I believe they care. I'm working to let go of something that's so much a part of me that getting to the root of it may take the rest of my life. And at the same time, I'm working hard to hold on to what I've long learned and believed about who and what we are called to be as disciples of Christ. That all of us, all of us, everyone are beloved children of God. And we're called to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to do our part to let the oppressed be free of what is burdening them and holding them back. So we have a board member in the Alliance who says, if you're not a part of the solution to racism in your community, then you're a part of the problem. Another board member talks about the theology of resistance. Do you all use that word here? Do you use that word much, Kendall? You know, I, I, I've never, I've never, let me tell you, this, I've never used that word much. I just thought that word sounds so political. I mean, don't you think it sounds, it's a real political hot word right now. But, you know, I was at a Methodist church not too long ago. I go to all kinds of churches and visit the community. And someone was received as a member that day, and the liturgy said that person committed to resist evil. It's there in the Methodist temple, and I thought, gosh, if it's in the Methodist temple, why don't I say that more? Why am I not saying that more in church? If, why, do, why do we let these words get politicized? It's a good word. We are called to resist evil. We are called to be a part of the resistance. I don't want to be categorized as a white moderate like Dr. King said in the letter from the Birmingham jail. I don't want to be that. Not me. A stumbling block to the African-American stride toward freedom. And he addressed that letter to pastors of white, moderate churches who said they agreed with his goals, but not the direct action methods. 
Who would suggest that this just is not a convenient time to raise this concern? Man, I hear that a lot in churches. I can imagine some of the church saying, Paula, what you're talking about is too political, and they need to keep politics out of church. But, you know, I'm talking about people's lives here. When white moderates say things like this, I am reminded it's time to hold up that mirror and examine myself through today's readings. And isn't Jesus' critique of the church then, of his followers then, also actually of the synagogue then, isn't it true of the church today? Does my response promote human precepts and abandon the commandments of God? Are we holding fast to human tradition or to what God would have us be and do? Oh, I pray that Jesus will continue to nudge me to examine, to see, to look in that mirror, to question, to let go of the traditions I need to let go of and release and move forward holding tightly to the vision of the beloved community. That is my prayer for me, is for the Alliance. It is also my prayer for you, my friends, Lakeshore Baptist Church. May that community be born in us, the community that resides in the imagination of the Spirit of God. May it be so. Amen.